0: Thanks for tuning into the rescue cast and story for the delay on this one. We finally came up to a point where we had to think about disclaimers or whether we wanted to add a disclaimer to the rescue cast. It's interesting a little segue going back in our history. We started as a training company at Ronin and at some point our competition or some of our competition came and asked us to train them. We had to sit down and say, you know, are we a training company? Or are we a a group that's only gonna train certain people? Like what's our focus, what's our goal? And we decided back then that we would train anybody. We weren't there to make Ronin rescuers, we were there to make rescuers. And taking one of our courses was just a evolution or part of a journey of a rescuer going from that basic knowledge to the mastery of different events. And we took that and we've been doing it that way for years. And in this particular podcast, this Rescue Cast, you know, some of the comments made, we may or may not agree with 100%. And it brought up this conversation again as to, you know, do we put this out? What if we're not in 100% agreement with something? And we came back to the same conclusion. This Rescue Cast is about rescue for rescuers. And it's not the Ronan Rescue Cast per se. I mean, that's what it's called. But it's not that it's our opinion all the time getting put on to people. That's why we have interviews. That's why we talk to different people that are out there. And for most of the time, you know, 90% of the world jives. But like with any organization, there's going to be some parts of it that don't. And, you know, we said, hey, this is a rescue cast. It's going to have different opinions on it from different people different guests that we bring on to the rescue cast and so be it we're not here to censor the industry to neuter the industry we're just here to talk about rescue so with all that being said number 48 all right so for the Ronan rescue cast number 48 we have the joy of having live from new york cliff (laughs) freer he is uh over 20 years uh fire Confined space, teaches at New York State, rock, ice climbing, homespun rope geek, works for, is it Capital Technical Rescue or Capital Tech Rescue? Uh, Capital Technical Rescue in Albany, New York, yeah. Right on. And then you're also a member of the FDNY for over 20
1: years. Yes. Yeah, first as a paramedic and now I'm a fire lieutenant.
0: Right on. So did I miss anything there with in regards to some of that history? No, that's all accurate. It's good. Right on. And so today, you're, you know, you, we, we, we had yeah, yeah, that. We reached out, we chatted, but this kind of topic's near and dear to my heart: urban rope myths, folklore, <laughs> NFPA standards, and other unicorns. I mean, I just love that kind of stuff.
1: It is so much stuff gets passed down. I mean, you know, it's it's not in books. It's you know, it's it's done in the modern version of the fireside. You know, it's in a bar over a beer. You know the stories and stuff that you know been passed down from the, the probably the late 80s into the early 90s you know when technical rescue and rope started getting you know a little prevalent like hazmat was kind of fading and the tech rescue stuff started coming in you know we had a bunch of incidents you know the a lot of it came out of um, 1910 146 1910 147 we can find space standbys and rescues you know, uh, OSHA started cracking down on that because there were a lot of deaths. Um, and uh, I think it all just kind of got rushed. And I don't think there was a full understanding of a lot of the NFPA stuff. And, uh, and, and I think it was all well-intentioned. I don't think anybody was out there to, hey, maybe they were out there to make a buck. But I don't think they're out there to confuse people. Um, and as an instructor, and I know other instructors I've talked to, um, ever since I've decided to start teaching this stuff and when you really dive into it, NFP in 1983 has been the bane of my teaching existence for the last 10 years. Amen to that.
0: <laughs> so Why don't we just jump right into that? The misuse of 83. I mean, where do you want to start with that one?
1: Oh, 9,000 pounds. Let's go. Let's just go right for the teeth. 9,000 pounds. Everybody said exactly. Everything's oh, got to be 9,000 Safety factor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which, you know, it's not completely invalid. There there was a reference in an addendum in the first version, um, you know, back that, you know, and somebody basically just did a chart with basic math, you know, and that's all it was. It wasn't, there was no understanding of performance characteristics of rope or devices or slippage of devices. You know, well, really there weren't devices back then. We're talking racks and eights. Um the Petzl stop, maybe I don't really know. I know it's been around a long time. But I don't know if it's been around that long. Yeah, um, the
0: stop, uh, the simple and the stop and the anthron might have been back those days. Yeah,
1: yeah. And the Anthron's still around. Great device, other than it's handy. I mean, it actually functions as advertised, which is kind of nice. <laughs> um But uh, yeah, 9,000 pounds, 9,000 pounds, everything's gotta be 9,000 pounds. And I'm like, you know, and you finally go through 83, 1983, and you look at it and you're like, are you kidding me? There's only two things in this entire document that are required to be 40 kilonewtons. It's G-rated rope, which we all know loses strength as soon as you put a tight bend in it, regardless whether it's over an edge or tying a knot, whatever. And G-rated caraminers. You know, all the auxiliary equipment, which Everything except heavy-duty anchor straps and some of the rope grabs. Everything else is thirty-six kilonewtons at you know eight thousand pounds, and even that's insane. You know, I mean that's a that is quite a bar, but it's a manufacturing standard. And the fact that people are looking at these numbers and thinking that our safety factors need to be uh, fifteen times you know the anticipated static load is none nothing else we talk about. Has safety factors like this. You look at built-in place shoring. You're, it's a two-to-one, and it says it right there in the, in the Army Corps of Engineers guide. You know, Paratech struts. I think the Greys are. I think the Greys are two at full extension. I think the Golds are four-to-one tops. But you're talking eighty thousand pounds. So we're crawling into a collapsed under a collapsed building with. You know, and some guys are doing it with just a chunk of a four by four to put in temporary shoring, so they can continue to go. But when it comes to rope, you know, we're going to have these NASA level, you know, redundancies in place to make sure that we're safe. It's 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 been just such a miscommunicated approach to uh, safety and risk, and actually achieving the goal that it's. I think it's kind of skewed and. Like I said, the last eight years, it's it's definitely improved since uh, the guys in the 1983 have gone out with the T uh, the T rating. So it's getting better, but coming you know trying to get around that is just it's you know it's generational.
0: So here's some questions. I mean, I know in the last, as you stated, eight years, I'd say yeah, eight to ten years. There's definitely been an uptick in the sophistication. Of the learner of the rope rescue technician i feel considering from when i started and you started and you think some of that sophistication is now you know slowly making its way into
1: 1983 yes yeah doug stevenson and a couple of the other people um have uh have really i think really done a good job of uh giving the manufacturers variety in what um, you know, still guaranteeing there's good equipment out there, but giving them variety and Hey, do you want to go heavy or do you want to go light? So we have options now, which before it was all heavy. Cause it, you know, it was, and it was in that one line, you know, because it was always, you know, it started out, I think is the, uh, what was it? P originally personal. I forget what came first. There was a light and a personal, and I don't remember what order they came in. Yeah. It was, the way it, was the described, it was
0: What's that? I think it went PL, then they went into T, and then P kind of turned into a bit of escape,
1: but I might be missing the boat on that too. Yeah, yeah, I know that, you know, but basically it was looked at as one person, two person. Yeah. And by removing that designation of the light stuff, because the carabiners are actually the same, they just, you know, they put a different letter on it. Um, by giving that designation, they're giving, they're, they're allowing a the technician or the AHJ to decide how to use this equipment it was just brilliant the way they wrote it. So it, it opened up a whole other uh, avenue of how to do things instead of just completely taking it off the grid, which is what some place, places did. They're like, I'm going to, you know, I definitely, the, uh, you know, the back country guys, they're not following it. Nobody's carrying in, you know, 60 pounds of steel, you know, five, 10, 15 miles on their back. I and mean, that's just ludicrous. I wouldn't do it. Wouldn't expect them to do it.
0: Absolutely. Now, what about, You know, they've got a lot of stuff talking about the slippage in the devices now. And I know like our search and rescue here in British Columbia has started to move towards this idea of, you know, slipping of devices instead of safety factors per se. Um, Do you think that's the way forward? Do you feel that, you know, that's going to eventually make it into something like a 1983 or is that just too complicated to put
1: in writing? Uh, yeah, I don't, th- I, yeah, I think it needs to stay in ideas and it also doesn't belong in 1983. That's a, uh, you know, that's a rigging class. You know, when you're talking about manufacturing, you know, if pencils, you know, and, and rightfully so these devices have slippage because, you know, if they made it too rigid, either the device or the rope would just snap. So there has to be given, there has to be an understanding that, you know, things are supposed to stretch a little, things are supposed to give a little. You know, if not, there's just going to be too much stress in the system with an impact load. And I think as instructors, we need to do a better job of explaining that. Maybe a technician class, we maybe we shouldn't be banging it out in 32 hours. Maybe there needs to be a little math. Maybe there needs to be a little theory to make better technicians to understand what they're getting into. Um, It's funny you mention
0: that, and sorry to interrupt you, but Uh we just uh, obviously got postponed because of COVID. We're heading over next year to do the IMP one and two in Belgium, which is their kind of first two levels out of three teaching levels, and then a kind of a command level after that. And those two courses, we're doing the abbreviated version because of our background, and it's still something like 180 hours. Yeah. And yes, yeah, like you say, we're doing 32 hours for an operations class and maybe another 32 for a technician here.
1: You know, I think we're fighting um, a lot of this. We're, we're actually, we're fighting the wrong thing because a lot of these things have been put in place because of budgeting or losing people off ships or maybe they're trying to do the in-service class for the ABCD charts, which I've done and it's Groundhog's Day You know, you teach in the same class for four days in a row and then you go back week two and you teach the second day of the class four days in a row, Um, you know, which I get that, you know, everybody's trying to accommodate budgets and scheduling and things like that, especially for smaller departments, you know, for small departments, you you can't take 16 people offline. You just, you might've taken half their manpower for a week. You can't do it. Um, So it's challenging to say the least, but the, 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 the really important thing is, is we have to make sure that at the end of the class, they have the understanding we need them to have to be safe. They don't have to be rocket scientists. They don't have to be, you know, you know, rote geek professional, you know, lunatics like a lot of us like to be. Um, you know, it takes a lifetime to get there. And, I, I, you know, some of this stuff just, I think, needs to be explained better. Instead of just going through the, oh, did you operate the device once? Okay, good. Let the next guy in we have to give a little more understanding just the, the friction differences. Now, you look at a, a Grigri, a Rig, and a Petzl ID, uh, you know, pre-19, 2019, and post-2019 Petzl ID, just open them up. The bobbins are different sizes. They rotate a little differently. You know, the, the, the distance the rope is in contact with the bobbin is going to change the amount of friction on the rope. Um, and then you look at other devices, like an NPD. You open up an NPD, And it's great. And he uses that V-brake, except that when you turn the handle, it turns it into a pulley. It's no longer a device. You've turned it off. There's no friction there, whereas the other devices impart natural friction. And I don't think we do a really good job of explaining how these things work to the students to give them an understanding of how they're supposed to operate. Because I think it matters. I really do think it matters.
0: Absolutely, and I think we probably pushed off a little bit of eighty three. But before we wrap up eighty three, I just want to ask you: Sure. Then how do you figure eighty three? Like as a misuse, is you know, you guys down there have grants and grant writing, and they expense the oh, equipment. I mean, yeah. like a Rock Exotica Omni or a CMC Omni, same pulley, different standard, different price.
1: What do you? Yeah, think? Um, I'm going to put a disclaimer in as that might what I'm about to say? Uh, does not represent any of my employers. And this is my own personal <laughs> opinion
0: is Come that on. CMC
1: um, is predatory in their advertising and the way they explain things to people. Cause let's face it, a lot of the grant writers aren't rope geeks. Um, a lot of people aren't rope geeks. So people are just and they're well-intentioned and they're using this well intentioned. I want to buy the best gear possible. So my people are safe approach. That are a lot of these administrative positions or people that are put in these grant writing positions are, and they're totally using that to their own benefit and saying, oh, well, you know, you have to use NFPA-rated gear. There's nothing in the NFPA. It says you have to use NFPA-rated gear, but they've somehow weaseled it into, you know, well, if you want a federal grant, you have to get NFPA-rated gear. Oh, what well, is? I can buy the same pulley from the same manufacturer with a different laser etching on it and save $25, which means for every four pulleys I buy, I can buy another pulley. Nope. So they've somehow permanently inserted themselves into a middleman. And as a vendor, because they are, let's say I'm talking about CMC, they're a vendor, they're not a manufacturer. I want to know who their lawyers are because they have the best contract writers I've ever seen.
0: (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna throw a couple questions back at you here. Okay. Um, I mean, I don't work in the states, obviously. I work fire in north end of the border here. Yeah. So our OHS regs, HSE regs, wherever you listen to this, it states all rope and associated rigging equipment must meet NFPA 1983. I might disagree with that particular standard, that regulation actually, as how it's written within our s regs. However, I do have to follow it. Wherever yeah. possible. If there is a product that is 1983 compliant versus one that's not, I have to purchase by law the 1983 compliant one. So is that not the same in the states? It's exactly the same. So I'm gonna go back then. If NF if CMC's predatory on this, but they have to if you have to buy the NFPA gear, just looking for some explanation on how.
1: Like, where are your
0: conferences on that? Well,
1: because a lot of the stuff with the NFPA, it's not just uh, the end user deciding what's best. There is an enormous amount of uh, vendor and contractor influence on these committees. So they're putting themselves in a place, they're they're putting themselves in a place that the laws are written to monopolize, monopolize their position. And there isn't enough of the end user representation to turn around and say, "Hey, we need to reword that to make that a little, uh, you know, a little less monopolizing," because really, what they're doing is they're having these things written um, to just really shovel money their way.
0: And it's interesting you say that. I sat on a right of the NFPA um, instructor standard. What's that? Ten fourteen, maybe. I can't oh, remember.
1: Right. Yeah, I don't
0: know. And everybody. In the room, and I mean, for people that have never sat on an NFPA committee, there is reps from, like Cliff says, industry and fire and the people that make the workbooks and all sorts of people sitting on this committee. Everybody in the room agreed that at the FSI, fire service instructor level one, the person should be able to write a lesson plan. It wasn't in the standard at the time I was on the committee, and we said, you know, this should definitely be something we put into the standard at the level one, you know, area. What came back from different people within there is, well, we have to get an X number of years out of our workbooks in order to make profit, and we need an X number of stuff out of our training organizations in order to, you know, our PowerPoints and stuff to make profit. So while everybody agreed on it, it was also agreed, not unanimously, that it would have to be pushed at least one, if not two revisions of the standard so that the the industry people in the room could make enough money on the current products they had before they changed it yeah so i do see where you're coming from with that and it definitely is a little bit of uh it's hard to take as an end user sometimes
1: it is you know and it's it's just a shame you know and then you know you want to talk about everybody oh it's got to be nfpa it's got to be nfpa okay what about the Delta? They're in every rigging bag for every class I've ever taken.
0: What about Prusix? What about yeah. uh, uh, more stuff? I'm You're running. Right. We're running ASAPS now. We just said as an AHJ, skip it. We're what? using them. There's nothing else out there that
1: does the job. ASAP, it, it, with the exception of the ASAP lock being a little heavy, it's another device that operates exactly as advertised, and it could not be any safer. It's such a great device. yeah Yeah. and
0: so yeah we split hairs too but let's move forward here um thousand and six nfpa thousand and six and now you get these folks and it was interesting when we planned one of the grimps one year we want to do an ascent and there was a lot of conversation around are firefighters going to be able to ascend to this level and you kind of say it's an nfpa thousand six jpr that you have to ascend rope and then the discussion amongst the staff was, well, people don't really actually, you know, test that, or maybe they'll climb five feet on ten, or 10
1: feet up and down. Yeah. And then yeah, they never so do it again. Yeah. What are your thoughts about this
0: when you get these people that say, NFPA says it has to be done with this? And I've heard that with prusix like, you can't climb rope access style. That's not NFPA.
1: That's, that's 100% wrong. There is, there is no... There is nothing in 1006 that has that says it has to be done a certain way. There's there's no certain not prescribed. There's no certain device prescribed. There's no certain system prescribed. Um, yeah, it just you know it, you know the the one thing I think we fail a lot of, and it takes a lot of time to do it the right way. It says it's supposed to be belay competency testing. You know, I I don't think that's done as well as it should be, and that's you know before like where I work in Albany. And I'm trying to push it into the state, but I'm getting a little more resistance. Um, But when I teach for CTR, we do not allow another human being to belay a live load until they can prove they can catch the dummy in less than a foot. Yeah, we rig up a 150 kilogram
0: uh, haul bag through our rafters um, with canoprostic belay, and we make people catch it.
1: Yep. Uh, we actually, we we don't, uh, we let them pick whatever device they're going to be using in the field. We don't mandate any of the devices. We let our, our clients, our end users, our students, we, we ask them straight up. We actually, one of the biggest things we do is we have pre-meetings with them and we want to know what their expectations are. And we tell them what our expectations are. And there are times we'll walk away from the meeting, like, Hey, I think you need to find a different training company. This is not going to work because they don't want to be told you know what they think they're going to do is wrong. So okay, go train with somebody else. Don't. It's not going to be us.
0: That's an interesting point. I'm going to go off on a tangent here. If you're a rescue sure. training provider and you haven't fired a client, you're probably not doing anybody any favors.
1: You're probably not as responsible as you should be.
0: Fair enough. Okay, we've said it. Um, <laughs> <how's this next? laughs> you still think it's a useful standard. Do you think? I think a great standard.
1: Pardon? I think it's a great standard. Okay. I think the things that they ask you to do um, are straightforward, reasonable. And, you know, as far as you want to call yourself a technician, yeah, you got to be able to do all those things. You got to be able to rig them. You got to be able to do them. You got to be able to run a team to do them. You know, um, like one of, and I think one of the biggest changes that made this palatable, because I think when it, when, when the horizontal movement specifically said you had to do it on a high line, I think it made, the, uh, the NFPA2 class or the technician class, whatever, whatever language you want to use, made that a tough class. Um, there was a lot to put in it because you, now you're talking about a lot of heavy-end physics. and you know Basically, the, the last day and a half of the class um, went against everything we told them in the operations class in the first two and a half days of the technician class. So I was like, hey, remember we said we're never going to go over this load? Well, guess what? We're going to do it. Um, and I think now with the, you know, because now you can you can get one technician running a scene with two operations level teams and still do horizontal movement by doing a hall because it's just a main and ballet. One side's letting out, the other side's hauling. And there's your horizontal movement.
0: And for the folks out there that are listening that still think they have to do some sort of Kooteny Highline system in order to tag that off. If you're in an urban environment, like my department doesn't train high lines, we do cross halls in order to meet the standard. So because great. there's not a lot of slot canyons in you know, Southern Metro, Metro Vancouver.
1: (laughs) No, no, there's not. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, if you teach them a basic, um, offset, like a deflected offset and do, you know, and do two lines on both sides, don't overcomplicate. Don't be like, well, we're only going to be with, you know, within four feet of the wall on the other side. So we're only going to use a single line, stop complicating it. Two lines on one side, two lines on the other, either put the pulley, or the rigging plate in the middle and do what you got to do, make horizontal movement. Agreed 100%. It's, yeah. It's just so much simpler that way. And then it allow, it frees up so much time in the class to grab that person that's struggling with something and do another revolution for them to go through It's Now it becomes part of their muscle memory instead of having the whole class with the exception of two to four of them struggling through the complicated thing with the hey do we use prussic bypasses here or not do we do this do we do that it's the the the. i, forget, I think it was two, 2012 and then there was 2016 and then i think it quickly got revived i think the last version is when they took the horizontal the the, the uh, highline part of it out and it really is made for just a much cleaner class you know and then if you want to talk about highlines take a highline class
0: yeah you know, it's, there's a lot of specialty it, within this uh, uh, now that you can HD high lines all also yeah. you can play with.
1: And I, I think the one thing that I a lot of people use one thousand and six for is they they stop the uh, they stop the variety. You know, it's like, oh, no, one thousand six says you have to do it this way. I'm like, dude, there's a lot of right in rope. There's very little wrong. Don't crater somebody make sure it's safe. And, you know, if you want to use Prusix instead of a mechanical device, or you want to do whatever you want to use, automatic devices, non-automatic devices, use whatever you want, just do it right.
0: I think where that's probably gone off the rails is the AHJs. I mean, I know we just taught about a year ago, the last, one of the last groups of recruits that I taught came through and we were teaching them. We run them through a couple of days of rescue. And, you know, this fellow's like, teaching something different than we showed in the class. And we're like, Hey, calm down over there. And he's like, well, you could do it this way. And I'm like, you can do it a million ways, but when right. you're training 200 people, you're going to do it one way at this point
1: in time. It's, yeah. Like, I'm a, you know, I've taken a bunch of classes with ropes that rescue and Reed Thorne is a phenomenal instructor. He's really dialed in, you know, his class. He's great with the HDs. He's phenomenal with the, with the knot craft and the bowings. And I really enjoy taking his classes. They're a little tough, they're seven days, so trying to, you know, it's easier to get away for five. So when you're talking seven with travel, you're talking almost eight or nine days, a little rough, you know, with the work schedules and family and stuff like that. Yeah. But the stuff you're taking back, you know, only 10% of it is applicable. I'm not changing over my whole department or have the influence change over a whole department to Bolins, nor do I want to do it because they're a pain to inspect, which is why the eights work. Did they work everywhere? No. Are they better not? Yeah. Does everybody know the eight? Yeah. Makes it a lot simpler. You know, when you, again, like you said, 200 people all understanding one thing, let's go to the thing that we know works and is simple. And we'll worry about the one-offs when they happen, as opposed to planning, thinking everything's going to be a one-off. Exactly.
0: Um, another one here we wanted to touch on, ropes. Pay more attention to the rope they buy. Stop buying solely based on what looks good.
1: Yeah. What are Um, your thoughts here? Man, um, so there are two things um, in the last probably four or five years that I've really just kind of did. The two things have really both turned into like passion projects, like just seeking knowledge Um. And it's AHDs and trying to understand all the physics behind it and and just really trying to dial that in. But not only just understand it for myself, be able to teach it. That's a lot tougher to do. Um, So, again, that's why I was out taking classes with Reed. Uh, He's he's really good at it. And the other thing that was surprisingly um, just completely took me by surprise was rope construction. And I had the opportunity a couple of years ago uh, to go down. I was actually on vacation with family in Georgia. And, um, you know, I, I've, I've, you know never walked, I've never walked into a, a rope company ever. You know, it's just like, hey, is the rope we're using. Okay, cool. I happen to be down in Georgia. You know, you're down with family for a week. So obviously you're looking for a way to get away. <laughs> and I, I looked up uh, Scott Newell at Bluewater. I'm like, hey, I'm down in Georgia. Would, you, would it be cool if I came by for a tour? I was like, he's like, yeah, come on by. So I come in, show up. I have my uh, brother-in-law and my father-in-law with me. And uh, they're both tinkers, you know, so that they fit right in with, you know, they they kind. even said it, they kind of came, they felt obligated <laughs> to come. And they were like, that was amazing. They're like, I can't believe. It. Scott's incredible. And the amount of uh, thought and fine tuning that goes into making a modern rope is incredible. You know, the, the carrier count, the twisting, the, uh, you know, we we're talking about DGR. So for anybody that doesn't know what DGR is, it's, it stands for Damn Good Rope. And it's his 11 mil, you know, built for rope access, uh, nylon, uh, poly over nylon work rope. And uh, so, we're, you know, we had it in the shop and I, I really like the feel of it. But when you when you descend on it, you spun, you'd go around in a slow circle. I was like, that's kind of annoying, you know, if you're doing a free hang, you know, most of the time you feed her against the wall, but sometimes, you know, you're coming down and you're not touching anything. And I mentioned it to him when I was there and he kind of, you see him kind of get lost in his head for a second and he goes, okay, he goes, next year that won't be there. I'm like, what? He goes, yeah, he goes, it's just a matter of, you know, we got to balance, you know, how many core fibers twist left and how many core fibers twist right. And it's just a little off right now because it's an odd number. He goes, but I'll, I'll change that next year's version. And next year it came out and you, you, you rappel down straight.
0: <laughs> I think this is more important than a lot of people think. We get a lot of, you know, social media requests, um, you know, or via our social media, phone calls, emails, what have you, you know, guys are always asking and girls and teams and what kind of ropes you use, what kind of harnesses, what kind of this. And we're yeah. really surprised to find out that I own like four harnesses personally, depending on what I'm doing. And we own like all the ropes. We have ropes from pretty much every manufacturer and it may not all be 11.1. Some of them might be 10 and a half. Some might be six, depending on what we're doing, right. where we're doing it, how much force we're putting on the system, how much, how much stretch we need. What okay. device am I using? What's the environment like? Exactly. We, yeah. we did a job where we had to do a 700-foot triple track highline. We used isostatic rope. We found the most isostatic rope on the market at cool. the time. We are using yeah. kick elks on it. But this is just it. The uh, control ropes, were at, we're rubbing over guy wires, and we had no control over that until we could get out and start padding. But there was going to be time. So we used the rope with the toughest um outer you know mantle at that point in order to protect it as much as we could so when people look at this i i mean i hate to say you know use this rope or use that rope i
1: think it comes down to what are you doing it really does it really does and um you know so a lot of things so when you and i first started this there were four ropes yeah there were two from new england and there were two from uh km uh, no uh pmi and there were two you could tie knots in, and there were two you hated tying knots in. Yeah, you know, it was like Easy Bend and Maxware were from PMI, and if you got the Maxware by accident, you were like cursing the world because you, you know the knot was just so much bigger because the rope was so much stiffer. And now it's really down to it, exactly—it's a customizable thing. Like, hey, what are you doing? Uh, when I was working for the rigging Company here in New York, we were doing welding on rope, and the technora the slag was bouncing off of it it was amazing but i think a lot of people just go and they buy the same rope you know like hey uh hey, we gotta buy new rope what what's that oh i don't know it's uh the same stuff we've been using for you know it's, it's 15 years old okay we'll just order that it worked and honestly nylon sheath ropes uh they were the death of the uh the 540 because nobody understood that as nylon gets older it gets fluffy and adds more friction and it's, Russ, it's part, it actually,
0: part of our climate up here was the death of the 540 as well. Oh,
1: nice. I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> no, but if, it, but if you look at the same the same problem that everybody hated the 540 for actually happens in all of the new modern devices because it's no longer, oh, I can just ease up on my hand and be, there is no other side of a figure eight when you turn the bend. The rope can be as thick as you want. And the same thing with a rack. I can adjust the distance between the bars to get the feel that I want. The size of the rope is irrelevant. Yeah. When you're talking about devices with a set tolerance of you know, machine parts and it's sandwiched in there, if the rope grows over time like nylon does, you know it gets fuzzy. It, it's, it's, it's probably the least durable. Not that it's, it's indurable. It's the least durable fiber out of the four they make ropes out of now. And it gets fuzzy over time. Does it take away from the strength? No. Does it add more friction? Oh, hell yeah. So if you get an old rope and a Petzl ID, you're hating life because there's just so much friction into it because the rope's gotten thicker over time. doesn't happen with poly. Poly, you know, it's a little more durable. It's not affected by water, which is, you know, if you're in a wet environment, it's definitely something to consider. Um, But it keeps that sleek, smooth sheath for the most part the entire life of the rope unless you beat the living crap out of it. You know, so in the modern devices, MPDs, clutches, what you know, the poly ropes just flow a little better. Technora, it's awesome. It will eat your, the, the aluminum off your devices. So it's not like you can just go out and buy the strongest fiber, and it suffers from flex fatigue. So it's it its lifespan if it's heavily used and heavily bent is a tenth of traditional fiber nylon and, and uh, poly ropes.
0: Yeah, and I mean, then Dyneema.
1: I'm i don't know if
0: just a second clip yeah. um i don't know if you're aware of CTOMs. they do a what's called a trace system it's more of a military use system and it's a six mil system with custom devices
1: yeah and it's,
0: <laughs> yeah and as you know 100 uses on that and he's almost pulling 50 percent of his numbers on strength after that yep so just for the listeners out there all those fibers that are all over you and you
1: repel on technora that's part of the rope right yeah. So the the best way to explain it to somebody it's like, "What are they talking about?" It's a coat hanger. If you want to break a coat hanger, pick a spot and start bending. It will break. And Technora has that a, a similar uh, characteristic to that. That if you and especially the end, where you tie your knots in the same spot on the end of the rope all the time.
0: Yeah. and uh, if, you're, if I was going to say anybody out there that wanted to actually. Argue knots versus sewing so terminations when you start getting into your tech noras. There's that's oh, that's why you no. say these arguments go okay. both ways depending on
1: what you're using. Sure, absolutely.
0: So, and then, you know,
1: Dyneema next, I think. Oh, yeah, Dyneema is awesome. You know, 16 times stronger than steel by weight, it's phenomenal. You know, everybody's sliding over to the uh, the climbing slings, you know, the, the 12 and 13 mils, 22 kilonewton, 27 kilonewton slings, they're great. Um. Just, you know, you got to know where they work well and where they don't. They're incredibly slippery. You know, if you read any manufacturer's recommendations that have, um, you know, a considerable amount of Dyneema, like a full Dyneema core or some Dyneema in their sheath, they're telling you like, oh, if you're going to make a, you know, if you're going to tie two ropes together or make a loop out of this, you know, make sure you use a triple fisherman's and not a double fisherman's. You need more friction because it is an incredibly slick fiber it won't really sit well with a regular knot because it's not generating the same friction that we're used to with the other three fibers. And as far as running it through a device, I don't know of a device out there that can generate enough friction to hold it that well. It just slips.
0: How have you found it with the melting characteristics or like the it's, burning characteristics uh,
1: when you shock it? Thankfully, I haven't because I was smart enough not to use it anywhere where it was hot. Uh, but I yeah, that's a really to- good point to bring up. It melts the lowest out of all of them. It starts to soften, I think it... I think it's like 138 Celsius it starts to soften so like 250 or so yeah yeah it starts to soften so poly is actually a little less than nylon but they're both in the 400 range and then Technora is up in the nines and Mm. I mean it was a
0: rigging error on my part it was a competition and the consequences were getting wet not getting killed Mm. we pushed some Technora sorry some Dyneema slings very hard and when, the, when that scenario was done, we made it, we finished it. I threw them in the trash because I had melted one and hardened the other.
1: Wow, that's an accomplishment.
0: Yeah, well, we do. I broke a carabiner in the process as well. I'm not going to say what I did. And I knew going in, it was 50-50 as to whether or not we were getting wet. Uh, I,
1: I wouldn't let you throw that stuff out. That, that'd be hanging on your wall on a plaque right now
0: um well the problem <laughs> with that is if it shows up and someone sees it at the next event i'm gonna hear yeah. about it so we just ditched it in a public garbage can as we walked by to the next uh,
1: funny. no there's a there's a couple things i'm not allowed to talk about that when i'm with the people when these incidents happen we do nothing but chuckle and some of them are even on video <laughs> exactly <laughs> um uh, but yeah and then the, yeah i think the biggest uh thing that really imparts um The characteristic of a rope and it's really overlooked is the carrier count. And this is the, there's a difference between strength and durability and the knots, the ropes that tie like butter typically have higher carrier counts upwards of, you know, 24, 32, 48. They usually come in, you know, paired groups because of the way the bobbins have to go into the machine and everything. Um, So you can get a rope like HTP, which is a 48 carrier rope which means it has a lot of core. A lot of core is going to mean less stretch. We all know HTP doesn't really stretch very much. That also means my sheath is a little on the thin side. So great for high lines. You know, it's not really going to be running over anything. It's going to be up off the ground, through devices, through pulleys, you know, real clean terminations. If I'm running an operations level team, I don't want HTP. I want something that I can drag through, drag through the mud, drag over a rock, maybe over a guardrail, where, yeah, it's going to fuzz up a little bit, but I'm not worried about, you know, a Nick exposing the core. And all these things need to be looked at. You're, you're, like you said before, your environment, you're the, it, it starts with your environment and then it goes to your device. And then you got to go, you know, contact a couple of manufacturers and say, Hey, can I get hundred foot samples of this and this? And by the way, this is what I'm looking to do. What rope do you think I should be using? Not the vendor, contact the manufacturer. The, the manufacturers I've had nothing but great luck with. They're incredibly receptive, um, and if they don't have what you want, you know, again, we're in a world where they can just they can take the formula for a different rope, change the fiber content of it. So go from nylon to poly, or you know, maybe go to a Dyneema core because you want something stronger. But we're going to keep the poly on the outside for the uh, you know for the durability and the and the friction, and get custom ropes. It's not that hard, and it's you know, and you're going to be so much happier with the the learning curve for the devices you're teaching. Um, There's going to be less frustration. They're going to be incredibly predictable, which is an amazing thing, and you're going to get what you need, which is really the most important part.
0: And it's good that I think you bring this up. I mean, for people out there that are listening, that are training providers, I mean, I don't know about your organization, but you can respond in a second. But I know in ours, our NFPA ops courses where you've got, you know, the newer students run a certain style, type and length of rope. Our rope access ropes are different than that. The ones that are in the shop that are just doing rope access training. Our tech courses have a different style of rope. Our Grimp team has a different style of rope based on exactly what you said, the durability, what it's going to be used for, what devices it's going to be used for. And at the end of the day, it actually saves us money because if we went with all the same rope, some of it would get burnt out over there or wrecked over there.
1: Yeah,
0: 100%. 100%. Radio. Um, it's interesting. We you know we traded some notes back and forth here before we got on the call. And you mentioned here, and I, I want to bring it up because I love it. Hand-tied yeah. prussics need to
1: go the way of the dodo. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, for professional, all right, so we'll look at it from a couple different aspects. Um, just... Nobody's ever tracked their prospects, right? We don't know who tied them. We don't know if they've ever been loaded. Um, we don't know when they've been inspected. Um, you know, and we, people have, you know, especially if they tie them themselves, they probably tied it in one of their first couple classes. And there's a, there's a nostalgia to it. there's like, Hey, you know, I remember where I got into this. And it's, it's a fond memory of, you know, like the, the initial training and it would spark this to kind of like this stuff and get into it. And they say, you know, it's 15 years later and the same set of prospects are hanging on that guy's harness. And it's like, dude, you know, are you kidding me? Like, we got to get rid of like that my stuff.
0: Purcells and my climbing
1: gear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and then let's look at it from, you know, let's be more reasonable. Let's look at this from, you know, I, I work and live in New York. United States is an incredibly litigious society. Um, you show up as an organized rescue team, volunteer or not, because it doesn't matter. If you're an organized rescue team. You are responsible. All right. You go down, you do... Everything you're supposed to do in a timely fashion. Unfortunately, the injuries or the condition of the patient was mortal and they expired. You're going to get sued. And maybe it didn't go, you know, maybe there's a video of the edge transition and it looks harsh. We, now, it didn't incur any injuries, but the basket maybe swung a little, maybe banged against the 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 wall, the rock face, the whatever. But, you know, on video and especially the way people can sensationalize stuff, it doesn't look that great. And they're going to go through every training record. They're going to go through every equipment record. And they're going to chew you apart. So I would rather have something that's manufactured with a date with a, with a load rating on it, too. They also make, for those that haven't used them, phenomenal short anchors. <laughs> You know, you double that over around like a, you know, a low pipe on a, uh, on some, you know, exposed expanded metal, go around the frame and come back up. It's an, it, they're just great anchors and it comes with a rating on it. There is, nobody can convince me otherwise that hand-tied prustics is still the way to go. I'm even out on pretty much tying uh, the wrap three pull two on one inch webbing unless whatever I have, I can't do it. But at that point, I'm probably going to want to use rope anyway.
0: It's funny, you know, I mean, you and I have met on a working group and I've met, I don't think we met just all the no, yeah, it's, it's all yeah, like this. Yeah. And it's funny that a lot of it's come to the same conclusions. Tubular webbing, we use it if we've got to wrap something that's just gonna destroy whatever product we're using. You know, if we have to wrap a greasy axle because there's nothing else. Yeah, we'll find yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, than that, we just don't use it anymore. And it's funny you talk about using. The sewing prosex, the pre sewn prosex as anchors, we use it all the time for that. And when we were at one of the Grimp competitions in Europe, they actually stopped us and went over and they're like, "You can't do that." And then they read it, like you say, the load rating on the side, and they're like, "Oh my God, we need to buy a few of these." Right now, if you
1: did that with a hand-tied prosex, they would make you change it out. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so you like know, it. and it's
1: funny you mention this because um, I'm, you know, loosely. Uh, friendly with uh, Alan Sunshine, rope geeks and stuff like that. You know, we've gone back and forth over the past couple of years of different conversations and he said it straight out and he goes, I don't know what the deal with you people in the States is, but enough with the hand-tied anchor slings.
0: You know, so, <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> total tangent, 2013, first year we did Grim. We were a team of firemen showing up, North American firemen. We're using <laughs> hand-tied prusiks and things like this. And people are looking at us like we got four heads. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well. Um, next little topic, and I love this one. When did tailing become the gold standard?
1: Oh man, this I think this is another sales pitch. I, I think this is from a, you know a school or something or you know this is this is a you know I and you know. look. I, I get why Lipke's book. So, anybody that doesn't know what Lipke's book is, it's huge in the wilderness rescue. So, I, I know a lot of it is uh, Kirk Malkner. and Kirk. You know, uh, yeah. I wish he didn't hold classes in other than like September because it's like the worst time of year for me to try to get away. Um, I would love to go take a class with Kirk. Um, and I get why they do tailing, they're using a lot of non automatic devices, um, including the MPD and putting the MPD in there. Like I said, you pull that handle and it's a, it's a pulley. Um, that, you know, I have to, the rope has to be bent into it the right way to generate friction. Um, and, you know, and they're doing these lowers, you know, they're, you know, re-rigging from station to station and they already hiked in for a day and yeah, that, you, you need backup when you're that tired and that worn and, you know, I get it, especially with a non-automatic device and they are appropriate for use with, with other devices if needed but to say it's the gold standard is just you know you you look at you know some of these especially the way a lot of you know teams show up it's not the class where everybody you know 16 students are there and you're like okay you ain't go do that and you eight go do that where well, you have your flush with manpower and be like what tailing works great yeah well i'm also on a 45 foot wall and, you know, for, you know, everybody talking about twin tension systems, everything turns into a twin t- tension system after about 80 feet anyway, because you can't tell the weight of the difference from the load to the blade to the rope. So, you know, uh, so back to tailing before I get totally screwed up on that. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, it is appropriate for certain things. Um, I think it needs to be taught, but I think when you're talking, you know, you have to, plug it into your operation as needed like you would anything else it's a tool it's a it's a it's a piece of information that's useful i don't get the gold standard thing i don't um i'm going to rail against it and so until somebody can, can convince me otherwise
0: fair enough um you brought something up there and i'm sure i'm going to get some emails about it and I just want you to kind of clarify it, not justify it. I don't think it needs to be justified, but clarify. When you say you don't believe the MPD is, you know, you're say you said the MPD falls into that category.
1: I really do. And I, I think, you know, when you talk to instructors that, have I been mean, and the MPD is a great device. I'm not trying to bash the MPD at all. It's phenomenally, it's, it's a, if you're in a place that can't afford one of the, you know, capstan winches, or even before they existed and you're in a place that needs to do a lot of hauling, man, the MPD is the way to go. It's incredibly efficient, but on the lowering side, it needs to be operated properly. And I think I see way too many hands out front thinking that they're going to be able to hold the weight of the load. Um, so, you know, it's being operated improperly. So if we think about it like a pulley, because and that's really what it is. It's not automatic anymore. If something goes wrong, the operator, and there's plenty of videos out there, you know, uh, I know Ritz did them, you know, where they kind of blindfolded or obscured the guy's vision and headsets and to block sound and things like that. And they're like, all right, just do it by feel. And the results were not great. You know, so it takes uh, a, a decided action in order to reactivate the friction components of that device. And if the rope is going into it the wrong way, so the manual says straight out, the rope has to come out of the device at a minimum of 90 degrees. And the way I teach it is, all right, we're going to start here. And if it doesn't feel right, you're just going to keep coming back and back and back and back until it hits the horn. Once it hits the horn, you're going to hook it and then come back the other way until you feel comfortable. Um, Yeah, it's simple. It's straightforward. But I see way too many people You know, they're looking forward or they're, you know, hopefully not checking their phone. God, that's been a huge thing in the last three or four years to contend with, instructors included. Um, You know, they they turn the handle in it because they're sided next to it, right? You're not facing forward. You're always facing sideways when you operate the MPD for the most part, which if you get behind it, it actually makes it better, but then it makes the handle really tough to operate. But they come up to it sideways. They put their one hand on the rope, And then they turn the handle and they just kind of look forward and they're not bringing the rope back enough. And once you deactivate the V-brake, your hand is not enough to hold the load. One person, two person, any of it. It's a pulley. It's a 90% or 95% efficient pulley once you deactivate the V-brake. And it's a decided action to get the V-brake to, you know, you have to let go of the handle. That makes it non-automatic.
0: I think that's a good point for some people out there to understand is you're defeating the part right. of the device that makes it safe. If you, if I can use that word, I mean, to make it really simple, to make and it operate. In, yeah. In order yeah. to operate it. And so we're trying yeah. to figure that out while we're talking yeah. there, you bring up manufacturer's recommendations, sort of when you're talking about the MPD mm-hmm. and I mean, at Ronan, we're famous for it. We, we get a bit of hate mail about our HD setup. I've, but one to have to do some torque calculations online in order to prove that I'm not breaking anything.
1: I may or may not have emailed you once or twice about the videos you guys just put out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: <laughs> and the big thing, I mean, and I'll throw the disclaimer out: oh, torque calculations, a one dimensional calculation. You can pull on that head in multi-dimensions which with <laughs> other issues on your torque calculations. And it's right. certainly something you want to make sure that, you know, if you take a look at a lot of the, Companies that do this, take, take a look at their backup lines. Most of the time, they're not through the head. They're running directly over the edge because they're not 100% comfortable with it. But right. so, manufacturers' recommendations. I mean, obviously, we're way off label on stuff like that. And what are your thoughts in regards to, you know, as we teach, we say, you don't have to follow manufacturers' recommendations. And then I go out and do something that doesn't follow manufacturers' recommendations. I
1: know. I've been struggling with this too because I, I don't want to be a hypocrite don't want to I don't want to teach all week you know really reinforcing that oh you know it's the, the best thing to do is just follow the manufacturers recommendations follow the manufacturer's recommendations and then get to the day where we're doing the uh, twin skate blocks through the head of the vortex and be like oh by the way we're not gonna do that today um, and've I've been struggling with it and I've been looking for an answer, a better answer than it's strong enough. I know it's strong enough. I have no problem doing it. I'm not going to stop doing it. I'm just looking for a better way to explain why this is okay in this instance. Um, and I'm curious what other instructors are telling their students, if they are telling their students anything, you know? So I just want to open up a dialogue about that. You know, I guess uh, I don't know how to, you know, I guess I can get my email for work and stuff out on the podcast. That's cool with you. I'm cool with it.
0: Yeah, I'm definitely. Will it was one of the things I'll ask is how people can get a hold of you. But yeah, I'm
1: I'm just curious about it because it's 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 a little confounding for me because I'm you know pretty you know this is where the OCD kicks in and I'm pretty straightforward with well this is right and this is wrong you know and right's big I'm not saying it's it's a narrow channel by any means I have a lot of right in the rope world you know there's very few wrong things I think are like you look at it and you're like oh my god that's dangerous but <laughs> that happens so infrequently. Maybe not. It definitely might not be the way I would do it, but that's cool. As long as it's safe, yeah, go ahead and go for it. Um, then this is just the one thing because the manufacturer very specifically in all the AHD manuals, Vortex, Hair Adapter, Vector. Um, I'm not even going to bring up the pot. I don't care what that manual says. Um, you know that a safety line should be kept separate from the device. And when you talk in main belay. I think that's reasonable. I think that's totally fine. I, and you know, so if you're going to stick with main belay, I would actually stick with that. Um, that mindset. It, it is really the safest thing to do to have the systems as separated as possible. I don't like the word redundant. I think it's a really big rabbit hole to fall down. Um, I love Louie McCurley's explanation of it in her book Work at Height. That it's a dual protection system. I thought that was a really elegant way of putting it. And I also explain it in the, from the realm of the OSHA side, and ANSI. You know, when you look at a swing scaffold on the side of a building, their work platform is the scaffold, and that has its own anchors. And then their safety system has its own anchors, and that comes down, and it's separate and goes through their fault protection harness to their back. We're following the same principle, except that instead of having a swing scaffold and a harness, we're using both we're using the harness as both the work platform and the safety. So you have the system you work on and then the system you fall on. And when it comes to work, rope access anyway. Yeah. And then, you know, so the way I like, you know, when we talk about doing the twin lines through the head, um, the thing that I've been able to explain to my students that I think is reasonable and works well is that with a, the twin tension system, there is no chance for a, sh- a big shock load. Because you're not going from, you know, both lines have tension in them already. So if one line fails, you know, with the exception of a little bit of momentum that's generated, unless they're, you know, if they're being operated completely wrong, there's nothing I can do to help you on this one. Um, it's you know, it's the same room. amount of weight is still going to be on the head. There's going to be no shock load. It's just going to be, it's going to be going from split from two, between two ropes to being on one rope. So there's really no impact load
0: you're not concerned about the jolt force per se on that you figure that it's no, it's no, no it's system. i don't think there's going to be or... much
1: i think the jolt force is really going to be taken out by um you know unless it's an actual fall which yeah. means it's you know you know then uh, the systems weren't as even as they should have been or could have been um but you know i think the most of it's going to be is that if something happens the one rope is probably going to stretch a little
0: okay
1: and i think that's going to be the the majority of you know like the you know, the, uh, the attendant on the outside may all of a sudden come down like a, you know, foot and the other rope might get slack and you would be like, Oh geez, what the hell just happened? But it shouldn't be traumatic.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, our kind of policy at our organization with Ronan is if you can't work out what the load is on the system, then you're not teaching it. Right. And This is where, once again, like you said, right is a wide scope. I will tell you what the load is. You that I'm teaching at, you're the age, J for your organization, can decide whether or not the safety factor that you see there is adequate or inadequate for your potential, or your, sorry, potential for your organization with the potential of failure that could exist.
1: Are you doing static or dynamic safety
0: factors usually when we get i hate using static safety factors
1: yeah they don't really mean anything.
0: What, <laughs> it's most of the people understand so when i when i do something like uh you know how many newton meters of force is in the torque calculation on a tripod head on a lever um or cantilever? you know based on a bunch of other things that it's in straight it's in line plane blah 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 and i say to them This is the number that you're going to get for your organization. What do you use now to justify whether this is too high, too low, just right, my porridge, whatever. And if they can't articulate that to me, then we're not doing that drill right away. But that's where you have to have that conversation with the client to be able to say, this is why it's dangerous. This is the parameters around what you're doing. And are you sophisticated enough as an end user to understand the limitations of your systems? And let me call it the factors of safety instead of safety factors, because it's a bit of a different twist on that, mm-hmm. of your system to what we're doing.
1: Yeah, no, it's, um, and that's why AHDs are, you know, they are, um, they're not as easy as some people make them look, you know, and they're definitely not as simple as the manufacturers, you know, obviously they want to sell stuff and they're phenomenal devices, but when you start getting off the basic cookie cutter, you know, easily setups and, you know, you're going sideways A-frame or monopole and, you know, especially some of the stuff you can do with the TeraDaptor and the Vortex, especially the Adapter. I mean, that thing is, you know, what shape do you want it to be? Pick it and just build it. You know, yeah, I mean,
0: I know the boys from ART and they pushed that thing. I've seen them rig that thing like a fishing pole.
1: Yeah. Oh, we used it. We, uh, we bought a tower, uh, you know, a ham radio tower from an estate sale some years ago, but we had to go get it. And, uh, I used I, I forget, I think it was either five or six sections of the terror adapter. So I could take the bolts out and pop the sections off and then, and we were skating them down. And it looked like a banana.
0: <laughs> oh. And it's funny. I mean, I've rigged some of these in front of the manufacturers. And I'm not just talking the Teradopter here. I'm talking majority of them. And when I look over at the manufacturer and go, is this OK? They're like, don't teach it to anybody. But it ain't going to break. And I'm like, no. oh, gosh.
1: <laughs> well, uh, it was funny. We had, uh, we had Rich Delaney out. I think it was 2016. Uh, in Albany for a two-day workshop, and he brought the vector with him, and it was before the vector was released. Yeah, um, and the vector he actually had a coupling where you could take two sections of the vector and put it together and make a two-meter pole. And the engineers at SMC didn't like the safety margin on the torque on that, so it never got released. Um, but it was slick, man. Uh, Sean Cogan and I did the last day with it. We like, you know, it was like, all right, we're going to break in the groups. And Sean and I both sprinted yeah. <laughs> with the victory ball. We're like, we're using this. And we went to a, a old school, like, you know, it was retrofitted coal steam boiler house mm-hmm. at an army base was the final day. And we were just, you know, with all the catwalks and everything, we were just like, well, all right, we're going to bounce it from here to there to there to there. We we're just, everybody setting up. AHDs and just pull them across and it was it was a good good day.
0: Yeah, we uh brought Rich up a couple years back, same sort of idea. The guys from SMC actually came up uh because it's I mean they're literally from Vancouver and they're a half an hour down the road.
1: Yeah, yeah. And
0: we we a couple of the guys made a conscious effort to try to break one and cave it in. (laughs) And it's actually fairly strong.
1: The vector or the adapter? The vector. Yeah, I have one. I've uh, it definitely dings more or quicker than uh, some yeah. of the other parts from other manufacturers. I have. Um, I definitely would suggest if anybody has one to treat it with a little more of a kid glove than they would parts from a TerraDapter. Uh, uh, yeah, a yeah, TerraDapter or a Vortex. Yes. Um, it's a great piece, man. Simple with the Acme thread and just so easy to use. And it's the perfect height just to get a basket through. It's great.
0: Yeah, it was well designed that way. And then the um, the old, I don't know if they'll even make it anymore, the Arc'teryx Card 60 had the rifle pocket in it that popped down. It would fit perfectly right in the back of there, at least the ones we had. I Maybe mean, it was a different size, but we were running them on some jobs up country. We had to hike in and just pushing that rifle slot down for a long arm and being able to slide that um, vector in there, just sat in there like a, just perfect.
1: Oh, it's nice. Yeah. Yeah, depending on the client, I'll either suggest the, uh, you know, if the guys are really dialed in and they know what they're doing, I'll definitely suggest the vector. If not, most people, I actually suggest go buy a, you know, like a single inner leg of either a vortex or a tear adapter. And, um, I tell them to just go get two, you know, two of the, either the Talon or the Raptor feet and just use that as your head. Yep. Yeah. You know, point the end up, point the end down. You can't mess it. You can't mess it up. <laughs>
0: exactly. So, um, one of the last topics here that we had, uh, chatted about beforehand and I'm just going to kind of summarize it and let you go sure. from there. Students need <laughs> to understand that most instructors, a, don't know everything, but know what they're trying to convey. Yep. B, they're not showing you everything they know because they'll lose the majority of the class. And C, if you're showing something you don't like or agree with, start a dialogue, not an argument, with the instructor to get some perspective on why.
1: Yeah, I I think you know as a you know so I I. I I think I changed the way I looked at instructors and even instructing uh, a couple years ago, I got into this rut where all I was doing was teaching. I wasn't playing enough, um, too much work, you know, too much work not enough. whatever the line from the shining was, I, I was turning yeah. into the guy with the ax coming through the door. And, uh, so I, I now make it a point of going away at least once a year and take a class with somebody I've never taken a class with before. I don't take, I try not to take classes I've taken before, but definitely sit in front of new instructors. Um, which got me taking classes at Reed Thorn. Uh, we got Ritz Laney here. I've been trying to nail down Pat Rhodes for like three years now, but the timing of it is just never great. Uh, I was coming out to see you guys in uh, California and before COVID, that um, Rescue the Rescuer class. I'm really looking forward to that. Because um, it's different. I mean, that is completely different. The uh, the flyer on that sets the bar really, really high. So I'm I'm looking forward to that meeting Craig McClure. I, you know, got a kick at some of the stuff he's put out. Um, and um, I think as students, we need to stop walking into a class with expectations of, oh, this is the way it should go. Well, if you're a student, how do you know it's the way it should go? I think we need to have more of an open mind. And, um, as instructors, you know, obviously we need to be prepared. You know, I don't want, you know, if you've, if you've had a birthday from the time you took the class until the next time you touch whatever piece of equipment that you're going to teach now, then you are probably not ready for the class You as an instructor. Um, you gotta be yeah. You just gotta be prepared. But as students, they have we. I think a lot of students show up like, oh, I saw this on YouTube, or I follow this guy on Facebook, and you know, I think it'd be better this way or something like that. And they're like, dude, have an open mind. You're gonna learn more that way. And um, you know, I think the social media culture has kind of dropped a little bit of the social graces on that, and people are just a little quicker. Um, just in their own personality to criticize, to get on somebody, you know, bash somebody, um, just because immediately they don't think this is going to what they expected. And I think everybody's kind of comfort zone has also gotten a lot smaller, which is kind of sad to see. Um, you know, it's just, it's more fun if you just go out there and be like, Hey, check this out. You know, Hey, here's a
0: tangent. And I mean, we'll get back to this online learning, online training. It's happening a ton right now because of COVID. What are your thoughts with that?
1: Uh, It has its place. It definitely has its place. It's a great way to transfer information. Is it a great way to turn around and say, uh, you are now certified to do this? No. No, absolutely not. You know, uh, diving training agencies have moved over years ago to where you can do the bulk of the class. You know, because all you were doing was showing up to a classroom and watching a videotape and taking a test anyway. So why can't I do that at home? Okay, great idea. Well, you can do the same thing with this. You know, you can have the, some of the basic, you know, more basic information um, about it. Um, do some of the, you know, the more rote skills, you know, you can show them how to practice, you know, do like an animated knots or a grog knots kind of setup. Um, you know, but that you need to take that and that needs to be verified in person with this type of stuff. Again, it's, it's, you know, low frequency, high risk events, you, you don't want the YouTube certificate. It has its place. Transfer of information is always a good thing. The more and the access to information now is unprecedented. We've never seen this before. So it's good, but it has to be tempered. Um, I like you know, to say get,
0: that YouTube, so YouTube certificates will eventually turn you into a YouTube training video.
1: <laughs> I like that. It's the ones we
0: generally watch and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe they did that.
1: Yeah. Oh, God, those poor guys from, what was it, Fort Wayne? No, not Fort Wayne. Who are the guys that flipped the tripod with the report? Oh, on KTLA or oh, whatever, yeah. I feel so bad for them. Just the wrong day. It's probably never happened before. It happened that day.
0: Yeah, and it's... Uh, so- but
1: I tell you what, though, the guy that stood in front of the camera and explained it gets the PIO Officer of the Year award Mike. my... In my book, he schools a cucumber. Yeah, no, this, that, that rub didn't do what it was supposed to do, which I thought was a great line, but, (laughs) but yes, he sold it, man. He did. He just sold it. Yeah. You got
0: to, at least you, you know, be confident about it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're going to start freaking out now. The cameras are not the time.
0: (laughs) Um, You brought up an interesting point about teach the class your students need, not the class you want to take.
1: Yeah, this was, um, I was, I mentioned my friend Steve, who was also uh, one of the co-owners of uh, uh, Capital Technical Rescue, and he and I have friends, and he also, you know, is my boss in certain aspects, and uh, this probably goes back to about 2010, 11, somewhere in there, um, when I started getting a little more into teaching, so I'd been working for the state for a little while, he and I met through that. Uh, when I was teaching up in Albany for the state, that ABCD Groundhog's Day class thing. Um, And, you know, so I started working for him and I really, um, he's just, he's got a really good business model and it's all client centered. What does the client need? How do they want to do it? And it's fun. It's just, it's a really fun way to approach the whole thing um we have a lot of fun with especially with our you know we do a lot of annual refreshers for a lot of the industrial fire brigades up the uh the hudson valley you know north and south of Albany, and you get to see the same people every year and it's fun and it's interesting and it's you know it's you know he, Steve's the one that turned me on to rope access and we went and took uh you know some of the classes together and you know it's just very forward thinking um and so he and I got, he, CTR got hired to do an instructor, NFPA 1006 rope instructor update for a municipal department somewhere in the Northeast, doesn't matter who. And he goes, hey, you know, I you know, want you to write this class. I'm like, okay, cool. It was the first time I'd ever really gotten into, you know, uh, lesson plans and, you know, really planning out a day. And we went, we had the pre-meeting and they told us what they wanted. And I was sitting there taking notes and I'm thinking I'm being so diligent and You know, at this point, I was already, you know, uh, Sprat level one, and I was just full of information I wanted to share so badly. And I wrote this class, you know, it was an 80-hour class, um, and we went over the curriculum, and, you know, Steve just looked at me. He's like, we're never going to finish all this. I'm like, no, but this is really cool. He goes, I didn't say it wasn't cool. (laughs) It's just, it's your way over their heads. He goes, no, but two of the guys are rope access technicians. We know them. Um, and you know, so they'll be able to help in this. And he goes, listen, dude, really, he goes, this is way you're, you, you're giving them too much. You're going to lose them. And I'm like, all right, well, we'll figure it out. So the two of us went down, you know, we stayed there for the whole eight days. We were there or nine days, whatever it was. And I remember very distinctly after the, right after the morning introductions and a little bit of the classroom stuff we did. Uh, We went there the day before and he and I had hung, you know, six sets of ropes out in their truck bay, you know, because we were going to get them on rope right away and really start getting into it. And by lunch, we were like two or three hours behind already just on like ascending. And um, I very distinctly remember sitting across from him at the table in the the place we were staying at that night. And he had his laptop up and I had my laptop up and he had his bottle of whiskey out and I had my bottle of whiskey out. We were just wholesaling, just scrapping, complete afternoons out of this lesson plan, you know, out of this curriculum because I was like, Oh my God, that I screwed the pooch on this one. And I didn't screw the pooch. I just, I put too much in it. And It's much easier to erase stuff than it is to add stuff. So it's not the worst thing in the world to have too much, but my expectations of what they, my, they were my expectations. They weren't the students' expectations and And I've learned, I've learned to write better classes because I do go to these pre-meetings and I really listen. And, you know, and I even like to, you know, we've even done it where we're like, Hey, can we come and do an assessment of you guys to see where you are before we tell you what you need? You know, we've done some stuff like that, you know, and some of the departments are really into it and other places are just like, dude, just come here for 40 hours and then leave. Yeah. And get them all. Yeah. Yeah. You know, definitely a wide range of uh, delivery methods and, you know, receiving methods as well. Um, So, yeah, I think it's really important that as an instructor, you know, you got to teach the student the class they need, because if you're talking, you know, over their heads, if you're you're talking about what you were talking about before with, you know, trigonometry and, you know, sine, cosine, tangent of loss and break on a lever and, you know, stuff like that, they're going to be like, what? Anything
0: that I have to go relearn myself is an advanced class as far as I'm concerned.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I and mean, we've definitely gotten better at it and now taking this model forward some years and New York state starting having a technical rescue conference every year. Yeah. And a couple of
0: our lads have been down there.
1: Yeah. That's how I met Ed. Yeah. Um, it was awesome. And we've been able to dial that in just starting the first year being like, Hey, what do you guys want? So now we're across all of New York state, you get, you know, some people from the Buffalo, Rochester area, people from Albany, a couple people from downstate, you know, some volunteers, some career, a lot of really small career departments in New York state. So you're like, Hey, what do you guys want to go over? And, you know, obviously you know, everybody else is like high lines, monopoles, you know, and you're like, okay, let's let. let, let what was the last time you needed a monopole? When was the last time you needed a high line? Let's do this. What do, what do you guys actually respond to? You know, what were your last five rope jobs? And they're like, oh, a car over an embankment, you know, reasonably, you know, steep angle, you know, in a snowstorm. Oh, cool. Let's do that. So we hung a couple of cars on the side of the training tower. We did extrication from above. Um, and we've definitely gone back to basics on as far as the technician stuff. Uh, you know, some basic AHD stuff, um, which me and a guy from Rochester pretty much take the lead on. And there's a guy from Ithaca and a retired guy from Rochester to do some of the more, you know, like the rescue from above and stuff like that. And then you have the career guys that work, you know, because we're all part-timers. Then you have the career guys from the state, OFPC, that, you know, are able to, you know, because they go to, they teach a lot of these classes throughout the year. And they're like, okay, cool. These three things we see really lacking in our students as they come back through. So being that the people come to the tech rescue conference, and there's only 20 of them and a lot of them are, our instructors for their region or their area, you know, their uh, local county instructors and stuff like that. So we're able to insert this the, the stuff we see, you know, that the, the full-time guys see as a shortcoming over the state overall. And we're able to reinsert that information. So those those instructors can take it back to their guys. And when they run drills and things like that, the stuff that they miss, is good. and it's been great. So for like three or four years in a row, we've had a phenomenal response. It's completely student driven for the most part we, we there's definitely like a 25 30 percent of hey we're going to spin their heads off with this one you know like i told them what we like last year we did um oh god i forget what we did last year but like the first night you know we're all out getting dinner and a couple of students came up and they're like oh we like we can't believe what you guys have us doing and you're right it's actually not that hard it's really simple and the one guy he's leaving the table he goes hey you know really thank you for what you guys are doing he goes what are you going to do next year? <laughs> and I just about spit my food out of my mouth. I'm like, can I get through Friday? <laughs> you know, He's already thinking next year. Yeah. And then by the, and it was funny because by the end of dinner, I looked at uh, uh, one, one of the guys, full-time from the state, and I'm like, oh, I know what we're doing next year. <laughs> I was like, we're going to go around the tower. He goes, what? I said, yeah, we're going to rig all four HDs and four different teams in the corners, and we're going to go spiral up the tower and over it <laughs> you're out of your mind. I said, listen, if it takes us two days to do it, it takes two days to do it, it doesn't matter. But, you know, in harnesses, hanging, rigging, doing the tie backs, and then having somebody out there to actually do the, uh, you know, the, the uh, pulley passes and stuff like that, I think it'd be a blast. I, you know, it got canceled this year, so I guess I can let the cat out of the bag, but we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, people will be listening going, hey, I got to sign up for that next year.
1: Oh, it we're the only uh so yeah they do usually they do collapse trench uh avet you know I think there's like six or eight different choices and we're the only uh discipline that you know we have 20 students that sign up and we have a waiting list just as big as the first 20 like there's 40 people that are signing up and they're on a wait list to, to get in that's awesome it is it's great but again, yeah, I met uh uh mike bean ed yep. and um uh, is it matt matt yeah. mcgreasy
0: no not from our organization i don't i think they're the only two of ours that have been down there i it could be wrong no we've had three guys three guys
1: from ottawa one guy came the first year oh, I think they, uh, been so
0: the other guy from ottawa i might not know i know ed and mike because they work for ronan as well so the other guy yeah. i might not know
1: Yeah, Mike only came the first year. Ed, I think, has been there twice, and the other guy just came last year. Or maybe Ed only went once, and the other guy came twice. I don't know. They're great, great dudes, though, man. We had such a blast. And I gave him, uh, to one of the scenarios I gave him, we actually took uh, five ground ladders, and we lashed two of them up flat to the tower. Um, The other two, we cantilevered out about six feet, and then lashed a straight ladder out to the end of the two cantilevered ladders. Okay. And called it a cell tower array, and put a mannequin on it and said, "Okay, how are you going to get him?" That's awesome. Yeah, you know, just a really pretty straightforward, simple training scenario, and um, you know, put a little tower in there and stuff like that. And uh, the, the guys from Ottawa crushed it. They were the first, they ran to it. They were the first ones to, to do it. And it was just a two-person team, and they had a ground crew, but it was two guys climbing, and uh, they were able to go out there. They, yeah, access the patient, got them hooked up um pulled them up cross hauled him over converted the cross haul to a uh, twin skate and then lowered them down
0: that's wicked and it's good for, yeah. i mean that's what you want to do so problem solving's on rope
1: yeah yeah and that's kind of what we're trying to introduce we're trying to get away from the static uh who is it? the guy from orlando was uh i think he you know i think he Hearing the, the different podcasts with different people, and you hear the different frustrations. And I'm I'm actually kind of relieved to hear that my frustrations are very similar to the other frustrations. Going out like, oh yeah, it's a fire department class, which means everybody passes. No, well, so it shouldn't. Frustration should level. Yeah, you know, so you know, you can hear that you know you, you want people and when they if they say they're a rope technician, you actually want them to be a rope technician, not just a guy that took a class with a piece of paper.
0: Exactly. Got yeah. this for. I think just over an hour, so I'm going to wrap this up with just a couple of quick, quick fire questions at you, and then we'll uh, sure finish it up. Uh, preferred carabiner.
1: Uh, ooh, uh, well, much like food and music, I kind of refuse to answer because I'm going to use the carabiner that really does the job the best um, <laughs> nice. for devices or anything with a real hard connection point. Uh, a rock, O, a uh, rock, D uh if i'm running rope through something i prefer a rock
0: O. okay uh harness preferred harness yates tower yates tower okay i haven't played in that one yet i'll take a look at it
1: yeah it's Um, nice it's a couch
0: yeah piece of rescue gear you do not leave at home repeat like piece on your harness or on your clothing or whatever that you when you go out and do work or rescue that you have with you all the time
1: I have a standard loadout on my harness uh, for whether I'm, well, it changes a little for what I'm teaching. Uh, it also varies a little from what I'm working on. And, um, you know, if I'm working, working, like on, a, you know, uh, as, a, as a rat, uh, I don't use an ASAP. Uh, I go back to the Kong backups because they're just lighter and uh, just a little more manageable. lighter is really the biggest part. Um, that's really the only thing that changes is I'll go back and forth between my safeties. If I'm teaching, ASAP with either an L57 or the access absorber mandatory for any instructor. If you think otherwise, you just you got to rethink it. Um, I'm still I don't know for a personal device. I still kind of like the ID. Um, love the clutch, absolutely love it. But it, it's kind of heavy, and I really don't know if I need that for working on rope uh, rescue clutch all the way, no doubt. Other than that. Uh, a 1.1 pulley with a rock D. Uh, I have a set of Y lanyards some Blue Water on my harness already. I took off the trapezoid and I put a petzel ring open in there. And the Y yeah. lanyard goes right onto the ring open. So I don't have the the uh, semi-round, the demi-round uh, under the D ring. Yeah. So it's a little little cleaner up front. If you're in your chest ascender for quite a while, it tends to turn a little, so it might poke you and give you a little bit of a bruise, but it's not too bad. Uh, yeah, uh, definitely a you know, four foot dynamic sling. I put, um, I use the, the mammoth, the really skinny stuff for the stuff I carry all the time. Yep, um, the because I, I pick
0: it up every time I'm in Europe.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, I thread them through uh, one inch tube web. As a, a so
0: bit of a well, um, wildland fire, uh, wildland hose too. The uh, like a one-inch wildland. Hose. Oh, the one-inch hose. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, and but then I bar tack the uh the top of the webbing, okay. so I can rotate it and still inspect it. Nice. Yeah, just the one little stitch right in the middle, just to pinch it, so I don't lose it into the end when I need it. Uh, but yeah, usually like one or two four-foot slings, a one-inch pulley. Uh, if I'm teaching, I'll tend to carry a second rope grab on me. Um, just it just comes in handy half time um i'm not a uh, I tend to go with the uh hand ascenders as opposed to the handle ascenders just because they're smaller yeah. and I like the way um I like the ones from Hightech tech actually okay. uh, when I wrap my hand around it, it actually feels like i 'm holding a pistol so it 's two hands as I'm pulling it it just it's very comfortable right on yeah
0: uh, and how
1: can people? That it, pretty simple go pretty ahead. simple to load out. No, it's a pretty simple loadout. I try not to carry too much stuff. You know, obviously, the scent control device of the appropriate size rope my students are on when I'm teaching. Understood. Uh, forever. I, I think I, I mean, it searched for two years or so to find one of the old blue IDs. So when I was teaching fire service classes, at least I had an ID I could open without worried about dropping yeah. if I had to go grab one of my students. And I think... I think I only had it like a year or two when they came out with the new version. I was like, damn it. Exactly. it's <laughs> a museum piece.
0: Uh, and if people want to reach out and get a hold of you, ask you questions. What's the best way to do that?
1: Oh, sure. It's uh Cliff, C-L-I-F-F at Capital Tech T-E-C-H Rescue.com.
0: Right on. Well, I really appreciate you coming on. I think uh you know, you've definitely brought up some points that are out there in the industry that folks are gonna to want to listen to and talk about and spur
1: on some conversation. So I appreciate you coming on. Awesome. No, the podcast's been great and I uh it it you know, when we're spread out but we're, we're a reasonably small community and having venues like this to share are awesome. Right on. Well, stay safe. You too.